Job chapter 35. I'm going to read as crazy as this sounds the whole chapter. Job chapter 35. I'm entitling the message tonight, The Search for Meaning in Suffering. Or the search for meaning in the midst of suffering. In chapter 35, verse 1, we read, Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say, My righteousness is more than God's? For you say, What advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If your sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness is son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker? Who gives songs in the night? Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? Therefore they cry out, but he does not answer. Because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it, although you say you do not see him. Yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he is not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain, he multiplies words without knowledge." Elihu begins the third speech in his series of speeches. In the face of tragedy, in the midst of difficulty, in the problems of encountering suffering, in Job's circumstances, Elihu continues his conversation. By the way, in this chapter... Elihu accuses Job of, once again, self-righteousness and self-deception. Why? Elihu is still uncomfortable with Job's claims of integrity and innocence and no known personal sin. Elihu can't bring himself to believe that Job's hardships have nothing to do with some character defect, personal deficiency, or problem of sin. And for each and every one of you who have ever, ever, ever had anything go wrong, who have ever experienced any kind of difficulty, faced some tragic circumstance, the death of a loved one, or a a sickness that you couldn't explain, even to yourself or the people around you, you begin to ask the question, why is this happening? Why is this happening? How am I to understand? Or we might even say, why is this happening to me? Elihu is willing to concede that God might be using suffering to stir Job to seek God, but he hasn't abandoned the belief 
that Job is suffering for anything other than for something that Job has done. Elihu's second charge against Job is that Job suggested that there's no benefit in obeying God or righteous behavior since it's possible that you can suffer. Now again, here's part of the, the, what, what Elihu is hearing. Job is saying, you know what, I've done everything right. I, I've worshipped God. I've prayed for my children. I've offered sacrifice. I've lived a life of personal integrity before God. And all of these horrible things have happened. So, if difficulty can happen to the righteous or the unrighteous, to the rich or the poor, if there doesn't seem to be any relationship between doing what's right and avoiding pain and suffering, why should you do what's right? And so for Elihu, this is a gross inconsistency. Job has suggested there's no benefits in obeying God or there's no benefits in in righteousness. And so Elihu wants to address that subject. And so that becomes the key to understanding the chapter. Does godliness really matter? Is there any profit in obeying God? What's the use of being good? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? And so again in verses 1 and 2, he says, Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? The expression, do you think this is right? It's that word that we've already been introduced to in chapter 34, mishpat. Depending on the, the, the use and the context, it can mean justice. It can mean right. It can mean just. And so here when he says, do you think this is right? Or do you think this is just? He's using it in the legal sense of the term. It's a judicial term that you would use in court as you're pleading a case. The accusation, Job is acting as if he is more righteous than God. That's what Elihu thinks. Elihu is building on the earlier accusation made by Eliphaz in chapter 4, verse 17. And does this accusation have any merit at all? Does Job think that he is more fair than God? Now again, if we've followed closely and we've read carefully and we've searched Job's heart, I think that this might be an exaggeration, but Job clearly has made indications, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't understand what's happening to me, I don't understand why I've lost everything, I don't understand why my children are dead, I don't understand why I've lost my job, I don't understand how all of this could possibly be happening to me, and I also don't understand why God God isn't listening to me or why he isn't speaking to me. He has made the statement, if, in a sense, if I were God, I would want to do something about that. And so, does Job think that he's more fair than God? There might be some merit to to the accusation in this sense. The moment that you say, why did you do that, God? Underlying that very question 
is a question that each and every one of us have, and that is, if I were God, I would do things differently. If I were God, I wouldn't let people die in Syria. I wouldn't let a genocide to take place in Rwanda. If I were God, I wouldn't allow six million Jews to die. If I were God, if I were God, if I were God. And by the way, are you God? No. Do you have the benefit of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy, of his power? Do you have the the benefit of knowing the beginning from the end? Do you have the benefit of understanding how all things are working in a specific way? Do you think it's right? Elihu asks. Does Job think that he's more fair than God? And do we sometimes think that we're more fair than God? If we ever have made the statement, if I were in charge, I would have done things differently. Elihu has argued that in spite of Job's protest, he can't be innocent before God. Elihu interprets Job's argument that Job's righteousness has neither helped him or hurt him. Remember, he's addressing this question. Does it matter? Does it matter if I do what's right or if I do what's wrong? Does it matter if I, if I, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I'm as nice as I can possibly be to everyone I meet, if I, if I make a conscientious effort to do what's right every single time, do I still run the risk that something horrible and terrible might happen to me? The way Elihu frames the argument is this way. He contends that the presence or the absence of sin has no effect upon God. It can't hurt God. It can't help God. In the Believer's Bible study, uh, Criswell and Patterson write, quote, Rather, Elihu maintains that Job is the one who is affected. Elihu is answering the question, does it matter? Elihu's answer in short is, You can't hurt God by how bad you are. And you can't help God by how good you are. He contends that the presence or the absence of sin has no effect upon God. It can't hurt him. It can't help him. But again, Elihu is wrong. However, God does receive pleasure from Job's good works of obedience and love. And again, we know that from the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. And he is grieved by unrighteousness. How do we know that? Genesis 6, 6. Remember when the, when the Lord looks out over the earth and he sees that there's nothing but wickedness continually? It says that he's grieved. And also that what we do or refrain from doing, we run the risk of grieving the Holy Spirit. So there is a sense in which Elihu's arguments sound plausible. In the grand scheme of things, can human beings help or hurt God from a strictly theological position in the sense that can what we do affect God's immutability, his transcendence, his self-existence? Does the presence or the absence of human beings make God greater or lesser? The answer is no. But Patterson and Criswell are correct. God does receive pleasure from our good works and obedience and love. And God is grieved by unrighteousness. You see, apart from the entire revelation of the Bible, we might draw the false 
conclusion that it doesn't matter what we do. And we know that who we are and what we do matters deeply to God. So in verse 3 it says, For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have even more than if I had sinned? It was, again, his way of saying, Hey, if I do good, it doesn't matter. If I do evil, it doesn't matter. What does it matter? Does the sufferings of Job beg the question, Is there any advantages to being good, being righteous, Being obedient to God. According to the Bible, the answer is this. It's impossible to be good. It's impossible to be righteous. It's impossible to be obedient to God. Apart from Christ. Apart from the gospel. Apart from the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that Job doesn't make a bargain with God. We know, remember... The whole context. We have to constantly go back to the first chapter. Remember when the, when the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him in all of the earth. And Satan's response, If you take away the hedge of protection, If you, if you take away all of the goodness and all of the benefits that, it, that, it, that comes with being Job, Then he will curse you to your face. We know that that hasn't happened. Job did say in Job chapter 21 verse 15. Who is the almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do do we have if we pray to him? And, And even when Job said that. Who is the almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have that we should pray to him? Job is reflecting on the sentiments Not of the righteous, but on the sentiments of the wicked. I think what he's doing is he's reflecting a world that that is asking that question. And the reason why this becomes important to you is because I can guarantee you that at some time in your life, someone's going to come up to you and say, what does it matter? What does it matter? And whatever you answer... I'm hoping that you're going to answer in such a way that it reflects not just a limited portion of the Bible, but that you're willing to understand and embrace what the Bible's answer to that very great big question is. And so it continues. God is higher than the human problems. Look what it says in verse 4. I will answer you and your companions with you. This is Elihu speaking to Job and speaking to Job's friends. Look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. Elihu invites both Job and everyone listening to take a peek into the sky and to consider the clouds. He invites them to look because his supposition is rather simple. He's basically pointing out and he's saying from God's perspective, God is far above man's wickedness. God is transcendent. He is a spirit being. He is immaterial. 
God is far above man's wickedness and man's righteousness. Human behavior has no effect on God. The God of the universe is self-existent. He dwells in holy perfection and justice. Man's behavior can't add to that perfection, subtract from that perfection. God can't be helped by righteous behavior. He can't be harmed by sinful behavior. Sin only harms the sinner. Or the people who come in contact with the sin and the larger society. Now again, there's a certain element of truth to that. In the expository commentary on this particular passage, there's a very helpful comment that is made. It says, and I quote, A person's wickedness or righteousness affects only man, not God, When God shows mercy, it's not because man has persuaded him to do so. And if he inflicts judgment, it's not because man has injured him. God is sovereign and therefore self-determining. He's not bribed by man. His standards for judging people are firm, impartial, and uninfluenced. But since a person's moral conduct does affect himself, it does make a difference for him whether he sins or not. Again, we're back to the issue. What is the real harm in sin? It hurts you. What is the real harm in sin? It harms everyone you come in contact with. What is the real harm in sin? It hurts the individual. It hurts the family. It hurts the society. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him, it says in verse 6? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? It's Elihu's way of saying the wicked or evil person can't manipulate God, can't scare God can't threaten God into acting in any other way than what he plans to do anyway. So, and we've visited this over and over again. Can we scare God? Can we manipulate God? Can we threaten God? We can, but does it help? God, unless you do exactly what I say, I'm going to hurt myself. God, unless you do exactly what I say, I'm going to hurt somebody else. God, unless you do exactly what I say, I'm going to refrain from doing this, or I'm going to refrain from doing that, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. If you are righteous, what do you give him, it says in verse 7, or what does he receive from your hand, whether evil or righteous? God can't be bribed. God can't be bought. You can't generate kindness or favor or respect by the presence or the absence of whatever it is that you do or don't do. Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. Whenever the Bible uses the term a son of man, it's, it's an idiomatic expression that just simply means a human being. Your wickedness affects a man such as you. In effect, Elihu is arguing God is impartial. He's objectively determined to give the wicked what the wicked requires. He is objectively um, decided or determined that he is going to be just towards the just. He's going to be righteous towards the righteous. He's going, to be, he's going to discipline and punish the wicked. In other words, he's revealing what we already know. 
Job, you're getting what you deserve. Job, there's a reason why everything that you owned is gone. There's a reason why all of your children are dead. There's a reason why you have an incurable sickness and you're in a trash heap all by yourself. He's basically arguing that God doesn't owe Job anything. That God doesn't have to show up in court. When, the, when Job says, I'd really like to have a conversation with you. I would really like to hear what's going on. I would really like to have a fair hearing. A lie you argues, guess what? You can't manipulate God into doing something that God is unprepared to, to do. God doesn't owe you an explanation. God isn't under any obligation to do anything. As a matter of fact, if you turn the pages to chapter 41, verse 11, even the Lord says, who has preceded me? In the sense, who's, who's gone before God? No one. That I should pay him? No one. Everything under heaven is mine. If you are the self-existent creator who's created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it and all that is in it, and you are the self-existent God who's made the determination, everything that exists belongs to me. On the surface, it seems that Elihu's answers to the question initially sounds like, well, Job, I'm going to answer your question. Does it pay to be good? Does it pay to be bad? What are the benefits of being good? What are the benefits of being bad? It sounds like on the surface, Elihu is saying, it doesn't matter to God. God is unaffected by your behavior. But you are affected and everyone around you is affected. Man, not God, is the one who suffers when human beings sin. Man, not God, benefits from man's righteousness. The problem with his answer is, it's incomplete. It's not a full answer. And look what it says in verse 9. God has his reasons for unanswered prayer. So Elihu argues, because of the multitude of oppressions they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. This is again an idiomatic expression. Look again in verse 9. It says, the people, because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. Hebrew, za'ak. For help, shawa, the people cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. Here's what he's saying. Elihu is saying, the people cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. That is, they cry out for deliverance from the hands of oppressors, of rulers, but they're not going to acknowledge God. There's some examples of this in the Bible. Where during the time of the book of the Judges, where the people cry out. They cry out for a deliverer. They cry out because of the oppression. They cry out, but here's what they're crying out for. Deliverance. Not for the presence of God. It isn't God that they long for. It isn't to have a loving relationship with God. It isn't to have their sins forgiven. It isn't because they desire or crave 
intimacy with God or relationship and fellowship with God. They want relief from the suffering. So Elihu draws a conclusion that many, many people have embraced. And that is people tend to cry out to God when they're in trouble. When you're throwing up in the toilet and you're going, oh, God help me. When you're in jail, God help me. When you're in the hospital bed, God help me. And what is it that you're looking for? You want out of the toilet. You want out of the hospital bed. You want out of the jail cell. What is it that you want again? I want to be delivered from the pain. I want to be delivered from the suffering. I want to be delivered from the oppressor. I want justice. I want wholeness. I want wellness. What else do you want? That's it. That's all I want. Elihu rightly says, do most people in trouble really want the Lord or do they just want out of their situation? People cry out to God when they suffer. Elihu reasons that God doesn't answer these prayers because they're simply cries for deliverance. They have no intention of turning from their sin. They have no intention to turning to God. They have no intention of asking for forgiveness of their sin. They have no intention of wanting to be changed from the inside out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty, that is the oppression, the injustice, the inequity. So in the Bible, like I said, people will often cry out for deliverance, but they still don't have a profound awareness of their sin. They're kind of disconnected. From the emptiness, the darkness, the wickedness, they misinterpret the loneliness and the emptiness. They think that the loneliness will be satisfied by companionship and they think that the emptiness will be filled by material blessings or financial circumstances or a healthy family. Is it possible that some people do cry out to God for relief? But it's not relief from sin. And it's not for the deep desire for a savior. I think that the answer is yes. Elihu is suggesting that Job's motives are impure. That he's crying out to God, but it isn't really God that he wants. He wants... Deliverance from the sickness. He wants deliverance from this or from that. But I think Elihu misunderstands Job and Job's circumstances and Job's true spiritual condition. When Job walked in righteousness, in purity, in decency, in integrity with God, and when the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him? Did God really mean that? I think he really did. Did he really mean that Job was the kind of guy who says, yes, I've blessed him and and look at his life. It's a wonderful life. It's a great life. But Job wants something more than just a great life. And he wants something more than just a beautiful family. And he wants more than just something about that's health in his personal life. He wants me. He desires me. 
And so, Elihu says, well, but that's not true. In verse 10, but no man, or no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Here's what Elihu is acknowledging. He's acknowledging a a principle. The principle is that some unanswered prayer seem rooted and grounded in the problem of pride. It is true. Job or Elihu is just simply repeating what James will later repeat in the New Testament. Why is it that some people's prayers aren't answered? And James says it's because they're praying with an impure motive. Question. Is it possible that people can pray with an impure motive? The answer is yes. Is it possible that some people can pray not out of brokenness and humility, but out of pride? I think that the answer is yes. The problem that Elihu is missing is that pride and impure motives assigned to Job probably doesn't make sense. So when he says, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Songs in the night seem to be, again, an idiomatic expression that we sing in hardship, we sing in sorrow, we sing in pain, we sing in affliction. Songs in the night in the, in the Hebrew has the equivalent of the blues. You've heard people talk about Singing the blues. Nobody knows the trouble. Nobody knows the pain. Yeah. The songs in the night. Do you think that they're universal? Do you think that there are people in every single time zone on the planet Earth who understand what it means to experience difficulty, pain, hardship? Songs on the night are the symbols of human sin and human suffering under crushing loss and unrelenting pain. In the silence of God, it seems to Elihu... And it might even seem to you, as you continue to read this, that Job has lost his song. For those of us who are tempted to judge Job or blame Job or wonder why he doesn't sing, again, part of what seems to be what the text is inviting us to do is enter into his circumstance. And experience just for a moment the crushing, unrelenting burden of having lost everything and everyone. And then being profoundly misunderstood by the people closest to you. And then being utterly dismayed when you cry out to the God that you love so much. And he doesn't seem to be listening. Wearsby comments, quote, But even if God doesn't relieve the burden, he can give the trusting sufferer songs in the night. He cites Psalm 42.8 and Psalm 77.6. 
any man can sing in the day, said Charles Spurgeon. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But he is the skillful singer who can sing when there's not a ray of light by which to read. The Lord gave songs in the night to Jesus before he went to the cross. In Matthew 26, 30, you'll remember that when they're coming from that scene up on the, on, in Jerusalem from the Passover, they're coming through the Valley of Kidron. They're headed for the Garden of Gethsemane and they're singing the Hallel songs. He went to the cross and Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 verse 25. They have just been beaten. Their arms are in chains. And the jailer hears music coming from the cell. Can you imagine if they were singing something like, And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. And on that day, and on that day, When my strength is failing. You see part of the invitation is. There's probably going to come a day. When you receive the most horrible news. That you've ever heard. Or you experience the most disappointing thing. That you've ever experienced. Spurgeon also said. Songs in the night come only from God. They're not from the power of man. Spurgeon said that we can sing of the day that is past, the night that is not all darkness, and the morning that is to come. Remember, it's not always night with thee. Remember that God who made thee sing yesterday. Spurgeon said, Remember it, it was not always night with thee. Remember that God who made thee sing yesterday has not left thee in the night. He is not a daylight God who cannot know his children in darkness, but he loves thee now as much as ever. Though he had left thee a little, it is to prove thee or to test thee, to make thee trust him better and serve him more. Sometimes it doesn't always feel that way. In the darkness, on the hospital bed, in the jail cell. It doesn't always feel that way. So what are the benefits for those who know God and trust God? They can sing in the night. They can find true comfort in real pain and real trouble. God is willing to instruct us who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the the birds of heaven in verse 11. Job has sung a song. He has sung the song. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job has sang the song. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold in chapter 23, verse 10. And sometimes it's easier to sing the song. And sometimes it's less easy. 
And so the invitation becomes to the person who says, I don't see God. I don't see him. I don't see him in the circumstance that I find myself in. I don't see him in the illness. I don't see him in the setback. I don't see him. And the scripture's testimony is, he sees you. In the dark place, in the difficult place, in what looks like the impossible place, he still sees you. And so in verse 11, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? The sentence on its face doesn't appear to be all that profound. When Elihu says, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? In other words, do the beasts of the earth and the birds of heaven obey God? The answer is yes. So if God can teach the birds and the beasts, can he teach us? And so that's the idea. Does the physical world have much to teach us? We know that the answer is yes. But can the physical universe tell us something about God? The answer is yes. But can the physical universe tell us everything about God? No. Can it tell you that there's a Savior who loves you? A Jesus who died for you? Who came back to life and ascended into heaven? You see, for that you need a special revelation. You need the gospel. The special revelation comes in the word of God. And then the word made flesh. Later, later, God will interrogate Job himself about the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air in chapter 38, verses 39, and then all the way to chapter 39, verse 27. We know that we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We pray for God's presence. Does that mean we're forbidden from from praying for relief? Is it wrong? Is it wrong if you're on the hospital bed? Is it wrong from the prison cell? Is it wrong with the diagnosis? Is it wrong in the difficult circumstances? Is it wrong in the pain to go, Lord, I don't want this pain? I don't think that that's wrong. It's not wrong to ask for help or relief from the pain. I think what the passage is indicating to us is to pray one more prayer with that prayer. And that is, I want relief from the circumstances, but I want you. I want you. I want your presence. I want your love. I want your favor. You know, sometimes in moments of honesty, we might admit that some of our prayers really aren't those kinds of prayers. Lord, I want a job. Lord, I want my bills paid. Lord, I want my children well. Lord, I want them to stop killing people in Syria and in the Middle East. Lord, I want the sex trafficking to stop. Lord, I want this. Lord, I want that. Lord, I want this. Lord, I want that. And somehow, friendship, fellowship, presence disappears. We greet God like he's our servant. We repeat prayers. 
that we learned in our childhood. But it's not really a communication with God. In verse 12, there they cry out, but he does not answer them. Because of the pride of evil men, Elihu continues to give reasons for the question of unanswered prayer. Elihu's explanation, unanswered prayer, even the prayers of a righteous man, may be due to a lack of faith, he says in verse 10. The presence of pride in verse 12. The emptiness of the prayer in verse 13. And all of that seems to make sense. Can lack of faith, presence of pride, emptiness of our prayers result in the prayer being unanswered? I think that the answer is yes. But I think we need to go one step further. And the one step further is when we read the verse again, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Do you think Elihu is thinking about Job? I think he is. But is the unanswered prayer because of some wickedness or evil that Job has committed? The answer is no. Again, think about what you're reading. Think about what you're reading. The passage is inviting you again to expand your sensitivity, to grow in your compassion. When someone asks you the question, why hasn't God answered me? It invites you to answer the question. I don't know. Is it possible that pride might be a factor? Is it possible that lack of faith might be a factor? Is it possible that the wooden emptiness of the prayer might be a factor? All of those things might be a factor. But whatever the reason is, Job's prayer isn't being answered because of arrogance or pride or deceitful demands. Again, the Believer's Study Bible, Criswell and Patterson say, quote, God will not answer a call for deliverance only, says Elihu. Men must call upon God's mercy and seek the wisdom of their creator, who gives songs even in the hours of darkness. The righteous person who relies upon the providence of God can sing hymns even in affliction, Acts 16.25. God has given man a higher nature than the brute beast, verse 11. And this nature should teach him to carry his burdens to God with a spirit of trust, in and commitment to divine providence if one does not cry out to God in the spirit that is humbly without personal pride he won't receive an answer unquote surely it says in verse 13 God will not listen to empty talk nor will the almighty regard it the Lord won't listen to those prayers that are full of pride and impure motives and so the Bible by the way speaks of a number of different things that might hinder prayer including If you refuse to confess your sins, Psalm 66, verse 18. If there's a lack of sincerity in Matthew 6, 5. If you have carnal motives, James 4, 3 says, if you want to burn it on the desires of your lust. Unbelief, James 1, 5, and 6. You have not 
because you ask not. And then he says, but also sometimes because you're not asking in belief. But sometimes supernatural forces are at work. Like in Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. Daniel is praying and he wants to get a message to God about his circumstances. And there's an invisible, supernatural, satanic confrontation that's taking place. And it's causing a delay. Another hindrance seems to be to refuse to, bibli- to, refuse to submit to biblical teaching. A, a refusal to forgive or be forgiven. Marital strife. There's lots and lots of different things that might hinder prayer. But the moment you say, I know why God's not answering your prayer. It probably means that you're pretending to know something that you don't really know. And that's the danger. I think we can bring up all of these things. But I think what I would do, instead of looking for reasons why God won't answer your prayer, I would look for reasons to try and figure out why God wants to answer your prayer. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there are certain prayers that he's so willing to answer. Like, Lord, will you save me? I thought you'd never ask. Lord, will you forgive my sin? I thought you'd never ask. Lord, will you reconcile a relationship? I thought you would never ask. In verse 14, it says, although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him and you must wait for him. Elihu's basically answering Job's Statement, I don't see you. And Elihu's response is, even though you don't see him, he sees you. Actually, that's good theology. God isn't unfamiliar with your case. When Elihu says God is just, is that true? It is true. Elihu believes that perhaps Job might need a little help. In recognizing how great God is. And so we've got chapter 36 and we've got chapter 37. When I was doing this passage, you know what I did? I went all the way back to the beginning of Elihu's speech. And you know what I did? I started counting the verses in chapter 32 and 33 and 34. And I went 20, 30, 60. We've been listening to Elihu for over a hundred verses. And I'm thinking, I'm so ready to hear from someone other than Elihu. You know, Elihu suggests that Job's circumstances won't change simply because of talk or words. Again, Elihu is going to suggest that Job's only option is to wait and trust. You know, it's really interesting about that statement. Sometimes words won't change our circumstances. Sometimes our only option is to wait and trust. So even if someone says something that you don't necessarily like them or necessarily agree with them, but when we've run out of words and we've run out of options, 
And the only option seems to be wait and trust. Sometimes that's exactly what we have to do. Look what it says in verse 15. And now because he has not punished in his anger nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Think about what Elihu is saying. Although you say you don't see him, justice is before him. Job, even though you say you can't see God or suggest that God has been unfair and unkind, well, guess what? You might just have to wait until God actually does rule on your case. And sometimes I find myself saying the very same words and I have to now catch myself. Where's God and why isn't he talking to me? Oh, he will be talking to you in the not too distant future. There's going to come a time where you're going to see him face to face. There will be a day when he will speak to you and you will respond. Well, why can't today be that day? I wouldn't hasten that day if I were you. Unless, of course, you can greet him as a savior. And, of course, his conclusion, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Elihu is convinced that Job's logic is flawed. It only has exposed his pride. He draws the conclusion that he thinks only a reasonable person can conclude that Job's claim of righteousness is false. That his words are empty. His words are foolish. In one sweeping sweep of the hand, Elihu says, everything that you've said, all of the chapters that include the statements made by Job, just forget that you ever heard them. What does Elihu really believe? He believes that Job is guilty of secret sin. What does he really believe? That God is punishing Job for secret sin. How is he different from the other guys? He believes that Job may have multiplied his problem by multiplying his words. And again, after reading 100 verses of Elihu, I'm thinking, really? Really, Elihu? But guess what? He's still not through. Elihu believes that he's helping Job understand where he went wrong. He believes that you can't force God's hand in chapter 35. That you have to submit to God's timing in chapter 35 verses 9 through 16. And that he's going to try to persuade Job that God can use his suffering for his good in chapter 36 verses 1 through 15. But he's also going to say, Job, I still want you to change your attitude. For the sin of pride, Elihu says, repent. For impatience, he says... Job, shut your mouth. And again, under normal circumstances, repenting and being quiet is probably good advice. Except for one thing. Job's circumstance. Job's circumstance. Job's circumstance. Isn't because he's done something wrong. And when Job does pray, he really does pray for God's presence. So, the answer to the question, does it matter if we're good? Elihu rightly says, well, you know what? You can't affect God one way or the other. That's true. His statement, sin only hurts the the people who are sinning. 
That's true. But to the question on whether or not God is apathetic, indifferent, uncaring about your circumstance, that's not true. Again, we have the benefit that Elihu doesn't. Chapter 1, verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Apparently, fearing God and shunning evil is something that matters to him. Elihu is right about so much. And he's wrong about so much. Sometimes like me, I'd like to think that I'm right about so much. And then I find myself not quite as right as I had hoped. So why doesn't God answer prayer? Well, in a way... The question itself assumes that God has to respond on our terms. But I think that the right answer is God does answer prayer. He says yes. He says no. He says wait. I think that part of the challenge then becomes... Are we willing to pray a prayer that doesn't just simply begin and end with the relief of pain and the relief of suffering? Are we willing to pray a prayer that says, I want to be relieved from pain and suffering, but I also want to be relieved from sin and self And I want to embrace what it means to have a right relationship with God. In order to do that, you have to pray a whole new prayer. And of course, for the unbeliever, it's a prayer of repentance and acceptance of Jesus. And for the believer, it's a willingness to want him to do exactly what the New Testament says, to seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all of these other things will be added unto you. But we still have chapter 36 and chapter 37. But we will get through this. Heavenly Father. Lord we know that these speeches of Elihu are in the Bible for a reason. Lord, sometimes it's painful and difficult to wade through his arguments. His evaluations and his conclusions. And Lord, sometimes it's hard to wade through the arguments, evaluations and conclusions of a a world that has an opinion about you. An opinion about sin. An opinion about pain. Opinions about brokenness. And Lord, we know that the world doesn't always draw the same conclusions that the Bible does. Of how to solve the problem. 
And so again, Lord, we pray that you would make us men and women who really, really, really want to know what the Bible says about suffering, brokenness, difficulty, prayer, and how to get help. And again, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that we can sing songs when it's dark, when it's difficult, when it seems overwhelming. In Jesus' name, amen. I know it's only...